Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. It's time to play Jeopardy. Are you ready? No, I said, are you ready? (laughs) Okay, good. So the category is famous nicknames. Uh, Here's how it's going to work. I'm going to give you a famous nickname, and you call out immediately across all four campuses. If you're watching online, call out who's represented by that nickname. All right, some of these are, are old, some are more recent. Old Blue Eyes. Frank Sinatra, the greatest. Yeah, he didn't have a, any trouble with humility, did he? Uh, Buzz. Yeah, I knew you'd say Buzz Lightyear, all you Toy Story fans. But it's the guy Buzz Lightyear was named after, okay? Buzz Aldrin, second guy to step onto the moon. Uh, the Wizard of Menlo Park. Thomas Edison, who stole all, all his ideas from Tesla, right? Uh, Petunia. Oh, come on, you watch the, the political news, Nancy Pelosi, good, good buddy of Donald Trump. Uh, the Round Mound of Rebound. Yeah, Charles Barkley, great NBA player. The American Socrates. Oh, stumped you. Benjamin Franklin. Duke. John Wayne. Mama Smash. There's not a tennis player in the, in the room. Okay, Serena Williams, great tennis player. One, one last one, the Weeping Prophet. Yeah, you're paying attention to the series. When, when Michelangelo painted a portrait of Jeremiah on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, he, he depicted this Old Testament prophet in a, a posture of despair. Yeah, head turned to the side, shoulders hunched forward, eyes downcast. So welcome to week one of a four-part series on the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, known as the weeping prophet. So what are we going to learn from this guy and how did he get the name? I want you to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah 7, you won't have any trouble finding this Old Testament book. By the way, bring your Bible with you as you come to church and mark it up as we go along. This is the longest book in the Bible, so you got a pretty good chance of finding it. Uh, It's even longer by word count than the Old Testament book of Psalms. 39 Old Testament books, 17 of them fall into the category of prophecy. Uh, By prophecy, we mean books that contain the sermons of Old Testament prophets, guys with names like Uh, Isaiah and Ezekiel and Hosea and Obadiah and Jeremiah. But what is unique about the book of Jeremiah, this book of prophecy, is we not only get his sermons, we also get a lot of biographical information about Jeremiah. There's more more biographical information about this Old Testament prophet than any other prophet in the Bible. And so as we study his book together over the next four weeks, we're going to learn not only from his sermons, but also from his life, from, from his personal example. Now, Jeremiah had a fairly extensive career as a prophet. It lasted about 40 years, which was unusual because uh, Old Testament prophets were not very popular guys. Uh, their job was to call people to turn away from their sins and turn back to God. And so most prophets didn't last very long. But uh, Jeremiah, 40-year career, it began in 626 B.C. 
626 BC, he began preaching to the southern kingdom of Israel. Now, for, uh, for several hundred years at this point in time, Israel had been divided into two kingdoms, north and south. The, the northern kingdom had one wicked king after another, and the country became so corrupt that finally God said, I've had enough of this, and he allowed the superpower of Assyria to come in and devastate, devastate northern Israel and take its people off into captivity. Yeah. The southern kingdom lasted a little bit longer, and that's because even though they had wicked kings, occasionally a good king would come along, a reformer king. And Jeremiah started his ministry, his career, during the reign of a reformer king by the name of Josiah. So initially, he had an easy job. But Josiah had two wicked sons. One of them, both of them eventually became kings. One of them was named Jehoiakim, Kim, and he was just a, a, a vicious, violent despot. And the other was Zedekiah, more a weak-willed scumbag, if you would. Okay, and so it was tougher. Things got tougher when these two sons began to reign. Internally, the country became corrupt. Externally, they were facing superpowers that were bent on their destruction. So to the south, there was Egypt. To the north, there was Assyria. To the east, a brand new superpower called Babylonia. And so Jeremiah is telling the people it's so important that we turn away from our sin and turn back to God or the same thing is going to happen to us that happened to the northern kingdom. And this was, a, you know, 100 years earlier from 722 B.C. The northern kingdom had fallen. Again, he started his career 626 and he's warning southern Judah, turn around, turn around, and they didn't turn around. And so in 586 B.C., Babylon came in and wiped out the southern kingdom of Judah and took many of its people away into exile. Now, Jeremiah himself, he managed to escape. He ended up in Egypt, and according to Jewish tradition, he was stoned to death. So aren't you glad we're going to spend four weeks on this happy-go-lucky prophet? Seriously, we believe that the Bible is an incredibly unique book inspired by God. And this is how God speaks to us today, even through portions of scripture like Jeremiah. And so at Christ Community Church, we have put together a daily Bible reading schedule called Bible Savvy that will take us through the entire Bible in a four-year time period if you read just about 15 minutes a day. And currently, if you're one of the hundreds of people around here who's following the Bible Savvy schedule, we're reading in both the Old Testament book of Jeremiah as well as the New Testament book of Matthew. And the reason we're doing this four-week Jeremiah series is to encourage you to pick up a Bible-savvy schedule and jump in. Begin reading God's Word. Again, this is how God speaks to us today. Now, we're, we're already halfway through Jeremiah, if you're following the reading schedule, but it doesn't matter. You could still jump in, first of all, because we're going to give you background. So whatever you missed, you're going to catch up on. Uh, in this series. And secondly, there are still six weeks of reading left in Jeremiah because it's such a long book. So you got six weeks to go. This is, this is God's word. This is God's primary way of speaking to you and to me. And so if we're not Bible readers, listen, if we're not Bible readers, it's difficult to have a relationship with God because this is how God communicates. So, you know, if you're not a reader, I suppose you could, you could get it on audio and listen to it, but you need the daily intake 
of God's Word. I hope you'll join uh, the hundreds of others who are reading God's Word, follow along in this Bible Savvy schedule. By the way, if you wonder where to pick one up, uh, you can get a hard copy at Resource, and it's a spiral-bound Bible Savvy journal where you can uh, record a sentence or two every day as you read something that strikes you from the text. There's an epic version for children, for grade school kids. In fact, we have an epic program on Wednesday nights. Hundreds of grade school kids attend across our four campuses. If your children are not involved yet, I encourage you, get them to church on Wednesday night and we will back up what you're reading together as a family during the week because everything taught on Wednesday night comes out of the week's worth of reading. And uh, if you want an electronic copy of the schedule, you could download the CCC app and you could find Bible Savvy on that. Now, if your Bible is open to Jeremiah 7, let me read the first four verses of this chapter to you. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This is God's word. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord. God's going to speak. Listen to God. All you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. He keeps saying this. Reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Stop there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Did you notice how many times Jeremiah said, listen to God's word. This is God's word. If he were preaching here at Christ Community Church today, he'd say, pick up a Bible savvy schedule. You know, this is how God's going to speak to you. Now, here is the particular topic that God is going to address in Jeremiah 7 that we're going to look at today. I'm going to call it churchianity. Okay, if you haven't taken the outline from your program yet, I encourage you to take it out, fill it in as, as we go along. Churchianity, what is churchianity? It's superficial spirituality. Superficial spirituality. It's, it's the absence of a genuine, life-transforming relationship with God. You may give the appearance, you may create an image that you are a Christ follower, but the truth of the matter is you're not really following, not literally following Christ. So today we're going to take a look at four marks of churchianity so that we can recognize it and we can resist it in our lives. Here we go. Number one, four marks of churchianity. Number one, self-deception. Self-deception. Jeremiah preached this sermon recorded in Jeremiah 7 at the, the gate of the temple in Jerusalem. Bible scholars refer to this as his temple sermon. Uh, so important a sermon that he repeats it in Jeremiah chapter 26. There was quite a crowd gathered at the temple that day, probably because it was a festival day may have been the Passover, may have been the Feast of Tabernacles, but Jeremiah decided to take advantage of this huge crowd and speak to them about a topic that he was deeply concerned about, and that was their, their churchianity. Okay, here they were celebrating God with all the bells and whistles at this big festival, but the fact of the matter was they weren't walking in obedience to God in their daily lives. That's what Jeremiah had accused them of in the first six chapters of this book. And he was warning them, trouble's coming. You know, God's going to send an enemy army to punish your disobedience just like he did with northern Israel. 
But the people weren't buying his message. They weren't worried about the possibility of enemy invasion. Why not? Well, because they had the temple. And the temple represented the presence of God in their lives. They had the presence of God. They were spiritual. And besides that, God would never let anything happen to his precious temple. He would not let an enemy army come in and devastate the country, including the temple. What is Jeremiah's response to their line of reasoning? He says, you guys are kidding yourselves. You're self-deceived. Look again at verse 4. He says, do not trust in deceptive words. This is why you bring your own Bible. We're going to ask you to circle stuff. Circle the word deceptive. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Drop down to verse 8. He continues, but look, you are trusting in deceptive words. There's the word deceptive again. Circle it again. Deceptive words that are worthless. And now God speaks through Jeremiah. He says, will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, follow other gods you've not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, say, we're safe. You know, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching. I've been watching, declares the Lord. Wow, so here the people of Judah are. They're disregarding God's word. They're pretty much doing their own thing. They're participating in activities, doing things that God had strictly prohibited in his word, said that's sinful, don't do it. They were making priorities, number one priorities, out of things other than God in their lives, worshiping other gods. But then they would show up at the temple and they would think, well, everything's cool. You know, we got God in our lives. Yes, we do. We got the temple. You know, we don't need to fear God's punishment. We don't need to fear enemy armies. We got the temple. Self-deception. It's one of the marks of churchianity, and it's still around today. And churchianity leads spiritually unsaved people to think they're safe. Let me say that again. Churchianity leads spiritually unsaved unsaved people to think they're safe. What do I mean by that? Well, the Bible tells us none of us are safe, that we're all in serious trouble. And that's because we've all gone our way instead of God's way. You know, God tells us in his holy word what to do and we don't do it. God tells us what not to do and we do it anyway. And We're really not concerned. We neglect his word entirely, so we don't know what he says to do and not do to begin with. And and this going our way instead of God's way pulls us apart, alienates us, disconnects us from God who is the giver, the source of life. And that's why the consequence of sin is death. The Bible says the wages of sin is, is death. It begins with spiritual death on the inside, a broken relationship with God leads to physical death at the end of this life, eternal death in the world to come. It's a bad news. We're all in trouble. None of us is safe. But God in his mercy and his grace sent Jesus, his son, to planet earth. And Jesus took the death that we deserve to die. He paid the penalty for our sins when he died upon the cross. And then he rose from the dead. And Jesus today, he offers 
Forgiveness and new life. He offers salvation. He will save any person who surrenders their life to him. So the question is, do you have salvation? Are you saved? Have you surrendered your life to Christ? But here's the problem. Here's where self-deception enters the picture. Some people think they're saved. They, they, They think they're safe when they've never truly surrendered their lives to Christ. Well, if they haven't surrendered their lives to Christ, why do they think they're saved? Well, because they're trusting in something that they're confident will save them, but it's a false hope. Now, in Jeremiah's day, what was giving the people this false hope? Call it out. The temple. We got the temple. So what is it today that gives people a false hope that they're saved when they're not truly saved? Let me give you several examples, okay? First example that comes to my mind prominently is church affiliation. So I'm saved because I was raised Catholic, or I was raised Baptist, or Methodist, or I go to Christ's community church, so I must be saved, right? Let me tell you, churchianity is not the same as Christianity. Having church is not the same as having Christ. John Wesley found this out several hundred years ago. Wesley grew up in the 1700s in in England. When he went to Oxford University, he was a very religious person, religious student. He started the Holy Club at Oxford. Not not the rugby club, not the chess club. He started the Holy Club. This guy was really into religion. When he graduated, he became an Anglican priest. And then he volunteered to go overseas. He traveled across the Atlantic to the American colonies, to Georgia, where he was a missionary for several years. And and then on the, the voyage home, his ship ran into a terrible storm. And he was horribly frightened. He was scared he was gonna die. And when the ship made it safely back to England, he was in a a, a spiritual funk because he thought to himself, I say that I believe that Jesus gives everlasting life, and yet I was frightened that I was going to die. What's wrong? He self-diagnosed, and he said, the problem is I've got churchianity. I don't have Christ. And so he surrendered his life to Christ. And that began a religious movement eventually became known as Methodism. He was the first Methodist. And the irony is that today you could be a Methodist and think that you're saved because you're a Methodist. And the founder would say, no, it's got nothing to do with churchianity. It's got to do with Christ. You get it? Good. What else? What else gives us a false hope that we're saved when we're not saved? You've got church affiliation, Second, how about I'm living a good life? I'm living a good life. Some people think they're saved because, well, they're an honor roll student or they're an army veteran or they're an honest business person, a loving husband, a good neighbor. But the Bible says, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the Bible's take. We're, We're all spiritually lost. Church affiliation won't save you. Living a good life won't save you. Here's another one. Making a one-time faith decision won't save you. Now listen carefully because I don't want you to misread what, what I'm about to say. Just because you've supposedly given your life to Christ by praying a prayer, 
Maybe you prayed this prayer when your girlfriend broke up with you, when you were devastated and you, you prayed for Jesus to give you help. Or you called out to Christ because you had lost your job and you were in need of work or you were struggling with an addiction or you faced open heart surgery. Maybe you prayed a prayer of surrender at a Christ Community Church service like last weekend when Kay Warren was here and 49 people said, I surrender to Christ and they picked up next steps packets. Will that save you? Well, it all depends. You know, it depends on the sincerity of the decision. The question is, how do you know whether your surrender decision was sincere or not? Because if it's just mouthing words, it's not going to save you. You know, the Bible says there's only one, listen, there's only one test of sincerity when it comes to a faith decision. You know what it is? It's the fact that you continue. Okay, if you've truly surrendered to Christ, the Bible says you will continue with Christ. So if you say, I surrendered to Christ back when at a summer camp or at a, an emotional service or whatever, and you're not following Jesus today, the Bible would say you were never saved to begin with because those who are truly saved, who've truly surrendered to Christ, continue to follow Christ. 1 John 2 verse 4 puts it this way, whoever says, I know Jesus, but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in that person. You can't say, I've got Christ, if your life is not one of following Christ. You hear what God says here? Don't deceive yourself. Don't mistake churchianity for Christianity. Make sure that you've surrendered to Jesus. Number two, second mark of churchianity, a lack of transformation. A lack of, go back to Jeremiah 7, pick it up at verse 5. If you really change your ways and your actions, okay, this is another line to highlight. Circle it, underline it, put a star next to it. Really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly. If you do not oppress the foreigner, okay, the immigrant, the fatherless, the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. If you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. God says that if you have a genuine relationship with him, not just churchianity, it's going to impact the way in which you behave. You know, we're, we're going to see changes in the way we live. Some of the changes described in the passage I just read. We're going to treat others kindly. You know, that's, it's going to impact the way we look at immigrants, the way we look at foster kids and orphans, the way we look at the single mom, the widow down the street or divorcee down the street. It's going to impact the way we look at the shedding of innocent blood. We're going to care about issues like abortion and say, oh, we're going to join in, in, in prayer, in a prayer movement to see this stopped. It's going to impact the way we look at other gods in our lives. We're not going to make a god out of our job or De Bears or our iPhone or travel plans or grandkids. God's going to be supreme in our lives. Now, let me tell you, this sort of transformation doesn't happen overnight, but it does begin the minute you surrender your life to Jesus, if your surrender is sincere. The transformation begins. You know, my, my, my older brother is in town this week. Uh, he came to visit family and uh, especially spend some time with my mom. 
uh, you know, who's, who's grieving? Having lost my dad back in June, it's tough to be married to the same guy for 73 years and not miss him desperately. So my brother's been spending time, a lot of time with mom, and he, he came into town, and I knew he'd need wheels for the week to get around, and uh, you know, it was impossible to lend him my car. I needed my car, but a, a friend of mine said, well, he could borrow my car. So I brought my brother to my friend's house, and he gave him the car keys, and I was surprised to see the car sitting in the driveway is a pretty nice little Volvo. I mean, I'm, th I'm thinking to myself, maybe I should give my brother my car, and you know, I could, <laughs> you know, like who... Who loans a Volvo to somebody who's a total stranger? Who does something like that? And then I remembered my friend's story. He's told me this in the past. He said, you know, when I became a Christ follower, when I, when I surrendered my life to Jesus, I was the stingiest guy you could imagine. But the realization struck me that Christ had given everything for me. And in light of his generosity toward me, a, a seed of generosity was planted in my heart that continues to grow. I'm becoming more and more a generous person. So Mr. Stingy is now Mr. I love to give. Ch churchianity won't produce that kind of transformation in a person, but Christ will. So, so are there evidences of transformation in your life? Take a look. You know, maybe you used to swear like a sailor, but Jesus has been giving you a new vocabulary. Maybe you used to spend your, your weekends golfing or shopping or traveling, and now you don't want to miss a worship service that gives you an opportunity to celebrate God with other believers. Maybe you used to use all your chill time to watch TV, and now you're using chill time to serve other people. You're finding a ministry to serve and rolling up your sleeves. Maybe you used to treat your customers, you know, as a means to a, a bottom line, to a profit, and now you're beginning to treat them as people and care for them. Maybe you used to lie routinely to your mom and dad about what you were doing and where you'd been and what you were up to, and now you can't do that. You, you find yourself compelled to speak the truth. Maybe you used to spend all your money on yourself, and now you find yourself putting a check in the offering bag. You can't even believe it's your hand doing this. Are you seeing these sorts of changes taking shape in your life? If you are, they're a sure sign that Jesus is at work in you. Churchianity doesn't produce that. Jesus does. A couple of weeks ago, two weeks ago on Sunday, I was preaching at a church in Boston, uh, actually Foxborough. I was in Patriots territory. I opened by telling them I'm a Bears fan. It didn't go over real well. Right. Way to lose your audience right away, huh? And so on the way home uh, from the airport, from O'Hare back home, uh, Sue and I were in the back seat of a limo, and the driver asked us, where were you? And we said, we were in Boston, and well, what were you doing? And my wife said, well, my uh, husband is a pastor, and he was preaching at a church there. And immediately the guy lit up, and he said, you're a pastor, I got a problem. <laughs> and he said, I have been struggling with a gambling addiction. And I've tried everything and don't seem to be able to break it, and it's ruining my life. And thus began a conversation. I mean, it started like five minutes into our trip and lasted all the way into our driveway. And along the way, I said, you know, this is the kind of thing that only God can bring a change. Only God can help you break a pattern like this. And he said, listen, I'm Hindu. We got millions of gods. 
it doesn't work, okay? And I said, well, here's the difference between any other religion and Christianity. In Christianity, God is not on the outside. He's on the inside. See, when you surrender your life to Jesus, he by his spirit comes to live inside of you and gives you power to make changes that you wouldn't be able to make on your own. We, we, we got to our drive and you know, laid a hand on his shoulder and prayed over him, gave him a God's Good News booklet, exchanged phone numbers and have been texting back and forth the last couple of weeks. You know, if you've got churchianity, you won't see transformation. If you got Christ, you can't help it. <laughs> and we just came through this Love Your Neighbor series, second greatest commandment. We talked about how important it is to meet your neighbors. If you've been living next to these people, goodness sakes, get to know who they are. Yeah. Find a way to have them into your home. Show some hospitality. Move conversations around to spiritual things. Serve them in some way. If that just went right by you and you don't really care about that, then you've probably got churchianity. If it struck something in you and you're thinking, I need to get some traction in this area. I need to love my neighbors. Jesus said, love my neighbors. That's the spirit of Christ working in you, giving you that desire. Let me give you a third mark of churchianity. Unheeded warnings. Unheeded warnings. Back to Jeremiah 7, picking it up at verse 12. God speaking. He says, Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. Circle the word Shiloh. Okay? While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, circle it again, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave to you and your ancestors. I will thrust you from my presence, just as I did all your fellow Israelites, the people of Ephraim. Okay, what is all this talk about a place called Shiloh? Let me give you some backstory here. If you want to read it for yourself, you could go to 1 Samuel chapter 4 sometime. Okay, hundreds of years before Jeremiah, before there was even a temple, God's presence among his people was represented symbolically by the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, this, this was a gold-plated box, and in this box were the Ten Commandments, the original stone tablets that God had given Moses. And this Ark of the Covenant was kept in the tabernacle, a tent. And the tent was located in Shiloh. Okay, and the people had the presence of God. They had the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark, but they weren't living in obedience to God. And yet they thought, what could happen to us? We've got the Ark of the Covenant. Well, God finally had enough of their disobedience, and he allowed the Philistines to come in and destroy one town after another until some genius in the Israelite army said, I got an idea. Why don't we take the Ark into battle with us? I mean, it's the presence of God. By the way, if this sounds at all familiar, it's because you know Raiders of the Lost Ark, and this is, according to that story, what Hitler tried to do, right? He was going to find the Ark of the Covenant and take it into battle. If you don't know the story of raiders, I'm sorry, rent it sometime. Okay. So they take the ark into battle, and what happens? The Philistines wipe them out, and they take the ark. They now have the ark. 
So what is the point of this story? Why is God retelling, reminding Jeremiah and the people of this story in Jeremiah 7? Well, God's point is learn from the mistakes of others. Okay, learn from the mistakes of others. If you're, if you're living a life of obedience, churchianity is not going to protect you. I mean, you could have the temple, the temple, the temple, or the Ark of the Covenant. You could have the Ark of the Covenant in your backyard, and you, you still can't expect God's blessing until you repent of your sin and you get right, from God, right with God. Learn from the mistakes of others. You know, the Bible is full of stories of people who majorly messed up their lives by going their way instead of God's way. And these stories are given to us as a warning. Don't take the same path. You know, don't think that you're going to get away with your disobedience forever. Don't gloss over your disobedience with some superficial spirituality. Now, now if you're a true Christ follower, you know, th this sort of a warning gets your attention. I mean, you, you learn from, you go to school on people, whether it's people in the Bible or people in your personal life who train wreck their, their, their lives. When you see that happen, you examine your own life for any signs of similar behavior, right? You say, oh God, I don't want that to happen to me. Please give me strength to resist those same sins. But, it, but if, you're, if all you've got is churchianity, then these real life warnings go unheeded. You, you see somebody who's hooked on pornography, and yet you continue to visit websites that are destroying your moral character. You, you see a friend get a DUI and you continue to drink and drive. You, you see parents who run themselves ragged taxing their kids to every activity under the sun and yet you do the same with your kids. You keep signing them up for one more thing, one more thing, one more thing and crowding out some of the most important things in their lives. You see a coworker, a business partner get consumed by work, and yet you continue to pursue career success to the neglect of other priorities. Unheeded warnings. I was working out at the gym this last week. I was on an elliptical machine, and in front of the elliptical machines, uh, there's a TV monitor, and they were playing American Ninja Warrior. You ever see that? Okay, it's a, it's a, a sports competition. It's an obstacle course, and there's four or five uh, contestants. And, uh, you know, I guess the obstacle course changes every time, but uh, it was the first time I'd actually seen the show. And I watched the first three contestants. The, the way you win is you've got to finish the course and have the best time. So the first three contestants started rather conservatively. Uh, they began, they ran toward this diving board, jumped off the diving board and grabbed hold of a net, and then they had to crawl their way across the net to the next stage of the obstacle course. Well, contestant number four decided he didn't want to crawl the whole way across the net, so he was going to hit the diving board harder and leap and land in the middle of the net, okay? Missed the first half of it. So he comes you know, racing down, hits the diving board, leaps, but he hit the net so hard he bounced off of it and fell into the water. He's out. He's out. Contestant number five. Contestant number five happens to be the twin brother of contestant number four. The dude looks the same. They're both ripped. They're both a little overly confident, cocky. And so I'm wondering to myself, well, what, what's he going to do? He just saw his brother fail miserably. What's he going to do? You know what he did? Same thing his brother did. 
It was like, is this the way twins stuff works? I don't know. But he came racing, he hit that diving board, he flew to the net, he bounced off the net and into the drink. And I'm thinking to myself, well, that was stupid. <laughs> you didn't learn a thing from your brother. Okay, let me tell you, if you're a Christ follower, if you've got Christ in your life, you, you see the mistakes of others and you hit your knees and you say, God, help me, I don't want to go there. Give me strength to resist that. If you've got churchianity, you continue merrily on your path of disobedience because you think, well, God will protect me. He'll spare me the consequences. And I want to say, nope. It's not the way it works. Here's a fourth and a final sign of churchianity. Churchianity is cause for lament. Go back to Jeremiah 7 one last time. Drop down to verse 27. This is God speaking to Jeremiah. Okay, God says to Jeremiah, when you tell the people all this, they will not listen to you. When you call to them, they will not answer. Therefore, say to them, this is the nation that has not obeyed the Lord its God or responded to correction. Truth has perished. It's vanished from their lips. And then he says to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, cut off your hair and throw it away. That was my application from the text. All right. Yeah. This, was, this was a sign of mourning in, in Jeremiah's culture. Take up a lament... Here's the word you want to circle. Lament on the barren heights, for the Lord has rejected and abandoned this generation that is under his wrath. So, when Jer listen, when Jeremiah saw the superficial spirituality of the people, when he saw their stubborn disobedience, it broke his heart. He mourned. He lamented for them. This is how he got the nickname, the weeping prophet. Now, I want to apply Jeremiah's response to their churchianity to our own lives. Okay, every time we see superficial spirituality, every time we see spiritual apathy, every time we see stubborn disobedience, not in others' lives, but in our own lives, the only appropriate response is brokenhearted repentance. Because if we will humbly confess our apathy and our sinfulness to God, we surrender afresh to Jesus, God will restore us. James 4, verses 8 to 10, come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Listen, grieve, mourn, wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Lament your sin. Lament your spirit. When you see spiritual apathy in your life, get on your knees and say, God, I'm so sorry. You know, I, I love the scene in The Wizard of Oz where they're about to go into the dark, foreboding woods. You know, where it's going to be tigers, lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my, lions and tigers and bears. And Dorothy looks at her friends and she says... You know, this is a creepy, dark place. And Scarecrow, who doesn't have a brain, says, I think, I'm not sure, but I, I think it's going to get dark before it gets light. See, when I say lament your sins, when I say you see spiritual apathy in your life, you see a lack of I'm all in God in your life, you see traces of disobedience in, in, in your life, 
And I'm saying lament it. Get on your knees and you're thinking, well, that's, you know, that sounds even darker, right? Because sometimes it gets dark before you get to the light. If you will humble yourself before Almighty God, what you'll discover is that lament is the doorway to forgiveness and restoration and a fresh walk with Jesus. I want to give you an opportunity. I want to take you to that door right now. You know, we're going to bow our heads in prayer. Before we do, I, I, you know, one side note to all this. When you hear a sermon like this, you want churchianity or you really want Christ? You know, a basic application at Christ Community this season, one week of, away from baptism, is to say, if you've never gone public with your faith, if you've never said, I'm sold out to Christ, I'm going to follow Christ by getting baptized. We added a baptism class this weekend. Typically, we stop baptism classes two, week before, two weeks before baptism because we, we've got a lot of things to get ready. I asked our campuses, I said, could we do one last baptism class at every campus after the last service on Sunday so that as Jeremiah speaks to people's hearts and people say, yeah, I need to be sold out to Christ. I've never gotten baptized. You know, not as a believer, not as one who's made that decision to follow Christ. We got one last class at every campus after the 11 o'clock service today. So check it out, whatever campus you're at. If you're at an earlier service, you're going to have to come back for it. But do it because you don't want churchianity. You don't want superficial spirituality. You want sold-out allegiance to Jesus. Now let's pray together. If you've never surrendered to Christ, or you've surrendered to Jesus, but you know you've wandered, and that wandering can be, I've been wandering for five years, that wandering can be, I wandered in the last seven days, kind of stepped off God's path. Now's the time to lament, to come before God and say, God, I'm so sorry. Can you do that? Tell God, I am so sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for my waywardness. I'm sorry for my indifference to you. I'm sorry that you don't mean more to me than you do, because you should. And now plead with God. God, by your mercy and your grace, because of the sacrifice of Jesus on behalf of my sins. I ask you for forgiveness, for cleansing, for new life, for restoration. And I want by your spirit to take some steps to make certain that I walk in your path and paths of righteousness. And teach me how to live the way you want me to live. You're my leader, you're my king. Lord Jesus, we pray this in your holy name. Amen.